Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we are looking at verses 9 and 10. As Paul wraps up this first section of, of Romans, Romans 5. And, and we began this passage last week by saying if I were to summarize what Paul's been saying in verses 6 through 8, it would be you have no idea how much God loves you. Maybe um, you, you've, you have a taste of that because you remember who you were and what, what you've done. Maybe you have recently come to Christ. Maybe you can think back like me 25 years ago and, and you say, Oh, I know God loves me because He forgave me much. But God's love that has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit has no earthly equal. I mean, it's beyond human comprehension apart from the Bible and the help of the, the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, he tells us we can actually catch a glimpse of that as we, we look at the objects that his love is poured out on. It's expressed toward the undeserving, helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies. And then in verse 7, we're told that we, we can't look at human love to better, to better understand it because the highest form of, of love that we can muster, God's love is higher still. Paul said, if you really want to, to see it, look at the cross. That's what he says in verse 8. God's love is demonstrated by the cross of Jesus Christ. His death for his enemies proves or demonstrates his love. And the result of that love is the security of believers. And so we said last week, that's what Paul addresses now in verses 9 and 10. You also have no idea how secure you are because of what God has done. And Paul is now moving to, to show us that. And as much as the danger of wrath was real and present as a, as a sinner, you're even more secure uh, as, as one who's now been justified. It's a, a simple version of his argument. And that security is outlined in this fourth set of blessings that, that, that starts in chapter 5. It's been running since verse 1 and it'll go all the way through the end of, of chapter 8, which some of the songs that we sang this morning based on chapter 8. And, and this whole section begins with the words, Therefore, chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. And Paul's been listing all of the blessings, the things that that we've gained, which includes peace with God in verse 1, hope in Christ, verses 2, hope in the midst of troubles in verse 3 and 4, the presence of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, uh, the love of God in verses 6 and 7, and then a tangible demonstration of that love being the cross in, in verse 8, and now in verses 9 and 10, he says it includes an unshakable security, and a security that's proven or provable by, by sound reason. I mean, if all of those things from verses 6 and 8 are true about, about God's love, and they are, then, then God will, will surely keep us, and He will receive us in, in, into heaven. We, we said last week, I mean, ask the question, have you ever wondered if you got enough whenever you, you, you came to Christ? Or, or maybe you've heard that there's something more that, that you need. I mean, uh, uh, receiving Jesus is just the beginning, but, but you need to have something more, like, like the, the gift of tongues or, or maybe a crisis moment where, 
where you gained some serious commitment to the Lord, or, or you were saved then, but now you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. Now you need to become a, a disciple. You're uh, like bifurcating or pulling those two things uh, apart. Or, or, or maybe there's some, some sin that you've committed since salvation, and you wonder, well, will God still forgive me whenever I, whenever I see Him? And, and Paul started providing the answer to, to those questions and and many more in our passage, and, and he, he provides the answer using logic. He says, if God reconciled you while you were a hostile enemy, that, that's a much greater feat than now safeguarding you as, as, as his friend. I mean, if you've never been reconciled to, to God, then, then you are in grave danger. I mean, you are on a collision course with the, with the creator of the universe, regardless of what you feel. He, he stands against you, and you shouldn't kid yourself that, that that's not the case. But if you're in Christ, Paul's talking to believers now in chapter 5, having been justified, the, the argument that he is about to make is if God has already done the most difficult thing in the universe to, to reconcile and justify ungodly sinners, how much more can we trust him to accomplish the much easier thing, which is to save a forgiven and righteous friend from wrath on the, on the last day, the, final, the final, final day of judgment. I mean, God doesn't just deliver us from sin and judgment. He wants, us to, he wants to deliver us from doubt. He wants you to know that you're secure because in that security is when you, you're able to, to serve Him. You're free to serve Him. You're free to serve other people. You're free to battle, actually, the, the, the remnant of sin that, that's in your flesh. That he's, that he's helping you overcome between now and, and the time that you're, that you're glorified. And so, so Paul gives us two logical arguments. We gave this outline last week about, the, about eternal security. He says justified sinners are certain saints. And today he's going to say reconciled enemies are secured friends. And if you say that sounds similar, you're right. But he adds some profound truth in this, in this second verse. We looked at the first one last time. The first logical argument about eternal security is justified sinners are certain saints. Verse 9, look, look at verse 9. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And in this verse, Paul gives us the reality of justification. <clears throat> having now been justified, that's a fact, the means of justification by His blood, and then the result of our justification. We, we shall be saved, that is, in the future. And, and His point is it, it brings us, His point is to bring us even more security than, than, than we already have seen. These are more, more blessings than we've already seen. Verse 9 is a conclusion based on what he just got done saying in verses 6 or 8. I mean, since God's love has been demonstrated by the death of Christ, while we were helpless sinners, ungodly enemies, then God will uh, surely won't pour out His wrath on us when we stand before Him. And so Paul provides the result of, of God's love, love here. It's demonstrated in the cross, but its ongoing result is, is eternal security. In verse 9, which includes our reconciliation. In verse 10, and we saw the argument was very logical. Paul goes from greater to lesser. 
In verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, that's the greater, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's the lesser or the, the easier thing. And the much more then provides this logical comparison. Paul uses this method four times in Romans 5. Twice here, once in 9 and 10, and then in verse 15 and verse 17. And he's saying if the greater is true, and it is, then the lesser by necessity must be true. I mean, if the first is factual then you should have no difficulty whatsoever believing the second because undoubtedly it is true as well. I mean, the great apostle is doing what he's done many times. He's reasoning with you with the, uh, through the scriptures and he's using sound logic to do that, to, which is a reminder that there's nothing illogical about your faith. You don't, you, you don't uh, check your brain at the door whenever you, you, you come to Christ or when you come to, to worship. It, it's the understanding of what God says in His Word to us that, that then brings about the, the emotion. Emotion is a good thing, but, but it actually flows through our understanding rather than just, just, just reacting to, to things. In fact, Paul proves that, that, that here, that it's, it's, it's reason-based. I mean, his argument is based on a common method of logic, a rabbinical method called heavy to light. I mean, if the, the judge has already declared you forgiven and just at the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, then when you stand before him, you won't receive a different verdict. That's logical. Um, the, the, the day of judgment has already come for us as Christians when Christ stood in our place. And there, the means of our justification is given in verse 9. Look at verse 9, having now been justified by His blood. There's the means of our justification. Not what you do, not what you add to, not, not even your faith. It's by His blood. There's the fact of it, having been justified by faith, but how it is secured is Christ's sacrificial death, His shed blood. And then the result of that justification, you will be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Just to tack that on at the end to remind you, it's through Him. You don't start with Christ and then pick it up from there. It's all through Him, beginning to end. Future wrath, which is the day of judgment. But there's more. The second logical argument that, that he makes about eternal security is reconciled enemies are secured friends. He says we're reconciled, we're made friends by death, and we're saved, we're kept as friends in resurrected life. Look if you would at verse 10. He says, for, a while, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And it's full of, of, of time markers. Verse 10 begins with, with the little word for, meaning it's a, Paul is explaining more of what he just got done saying in, in verse 9. Like I said, it's like restating something. If, if, if these two points sound similar, they, they are. He's just restating the same thing in verse 10 that he said in verse 9 to be clearer. And where does the clarity come from? He adds some additional details here in, in verse 10. Notice what he adds. He talks about our condition again, and he uses a specific word. He, he specifies we were enemies of God. Verse 9, it just says, 
having now been justified by his blood. In verse 10, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the parallel is the blood and then the death, but, but now he adds enemies and, and he adds a new term. And that term is reconciliation. We're reconciled to, to God. I mean, one writer said it's amazing that the Apostle Paul can make this paragraph keep going. You know, it's on and, and on. He's essentially saying the exact same thing. And yet he says it in a different way which is what a good teacher does, by, by the way. They repeat the same things over and over because we need repetition. And he, the good teacher repeats it until we get it. They just say it in a different way to, to make us think. And Paul often does that. But the topic here is not, hard to, is not hard to do that with. I mean, he can easily go on and on and on because the theme is the cross. And that, that, that theme is endless. I mean, Lloyd-Jones says Isaac Watts calls us to, to survey the, the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my, my pride. When we survey the cross, we consider the cross, when we, we look at it and look to it in, in, intently, it, it humbles us because of what happened there. We think about what happened there. Well... Paul employs this same logic in, in verse 10, and, and he goes from lesser to greater again. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, he uses the same methodology again. If the greater is true, then the lesser by necessity is also true. I mean, this time, though, he brings up our condition when we were unsaved. And he identifies us as enemies. And that, that's a, a, a way more significant statement than, than you, might, you might realize. It, he, he's already said we were helpless. He's already said that we were ungodly. He's already said we were sinners. But, but now he uses this specific technical term uh, of an enemy. It's the strongest of those four terms that, that he's used to describe our, our unsaved condition. And, and we normally think when we read a word like, like enemy, we, we, we think about how we feel toward, toward someone that we don't like. Um, enemies are hostile. And we think things like, well, I mean, I don't feel hostile toward, toward God. I mean, in fact, if I have to be blunt about my condition before salvation... I really didn't think much about God at all, except when I periodically took his name in vain. But I, I, I surely didn't consider him an enemy. I mean, I even prayed to him at times. Oh, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this situation, get me home tonight, I'll never do that again. I mean, I talk to God all the time as an unbeliever. I ask for things. Or maybe you read that word and you think even now, I mean, I know unbelievers, they're pretty nice people. I mean, they don't seem hostile. I mean, they're kind to me. I mean, they know I'm a Christian. I pass by their house on the way to church. I mean, they know I'm a believer. I mean, they don't throw rocks at me whenever I go, go down the road. They even check my mail whenever I'm out of town. They don't seem hostile. I mean, first of all, you, you can be nice toward other human beings that have no authority over you and still rebel against your Creator. Rick Holland said your neighbors are nice, but you're not telling your neighbors what to do. Um, bring some authority over that nice neighbor and tell them not to do something that they want to do and see how that relationship changes. 
I mean, the problem with all of those thoughts, though, whatever analogy that you use, is the focus is on us and not on God. When the focus of this text is just the opposite, the focus is on God. I mean, if you're thinking those things, you've got the cat turned around backwards. You, the locomotive is pointed in the wrong direction. I mean, the primary hostility mentioned in this verse is not yours toward God, but God toward you. I mean, Paul's point is prior to salvation, God was hostile to you. I mean, Psalm 7, 11, and 12 captures this reality succinctly. It says, God is a righteous judge. There's the position that he has. And he's a God who has indignation every day. There's the, there's the hostility. And if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. That, that's, that's the an analogy of, of what God's wrath looks like toward, toward a sinner. The King James says it, says it even better. God is angry with the wicked every day. And humanity without the work of Christ is here. It's pictured as God standing with a bow drawn. The only thing that stands between you and the era is, the, is, your, is God's fingers on the string. He lets go of the string and the arrow flies because he's a righteous judge. And, and so he has indignation toward, toward a lawbreaker, toward somebody who is an, an enemy. That, that, that's his condition toward you. If you're outside of Christ this morning, and it's his condition toward you when you were outside of, of Christ. You, you see, even the way that we read the word enemy is evidence of our problem. And we automatically think of ourselves. Uh, I don't feel hostile. I, I don't think I'm hostile. I mean, we think of ourselves rather than God because our sin nature is bent that way. I mean, we're the center of the universe in our world, not the one who actually is and the one who made that universe. I mean, the concept, the concept that Paul is speaking about here when using this term enemy, is not emotional, it's positional. I mean, enemy is a technical term. It has to do with our standing in relationship to God. God is saying He was our stated enemy before Christ. We, we were in a state of war. We had no diplomatic relations with Him. Uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. God had made a declaration of conflict with, with us, which is why you're called an enemy. I mean, Lord Jones says that um, you, you might think of it in terms that we would understand, relations between two countries. I mean, you have two countries that are, that are separated and, and they, they can have a diplomatic relationship. You send diplomats to the other country and you establish an embassy and your diplomats are, are there. And, and if there's something that happens between the two countries, uh, one's offended, then, then you may petition. The one may petition the other. The, the diplomat summons to the, you know, to the White House or, or wherever it is. And if the situation gets serious enough, you, serious enough, you withdraw your diplomats. You, you recall them. Now, that's a big deal in, in national affairs. But even then, you're not considered enemies because you've not declared war. But, but once it dissolves to the point of hostilities, then there's an official declaration of war. I mean... 
our, our branches of government fight over that on a regular basis. Well, Congress is the only one who can declare the, a declaration of war. Well, no, the president, he's able to commit troops, but, but the, a declaration of war is a, is a big deal. And from that moment, the, the two are now considered formal enemies. And that declaration ch- changes things in, in both countries. I mean, we don't accept each other's passports. We recognize other matters. We have wartime laws that may kick in, uh, wartime powers. We have wartime economies. The point is, things are officially different when that declaration is made. That's what this word means. We were formal enemies with God, positionally. We had no diplomatic relations with, with, with Him. We're not on friendly terms. He's not on friendly terms with us. Prior to salvation, in our state or condition, in relationship with God, we were at a state of war. That's pretty serious, given the fact who God is. And you need to remember, though, why Paul is telling us this. He's using logic to show us the basis of our security. And he wants to build out assurance if if we're believers, not to remind us to fear. I mean, he's not trying to take us back to chapter 1 and 2 and in the beginning of uh, of 3. He's reminding us of of those truths, and now he's talking to believers. Look at verse 10 again. He says, For if... While we were enemies, we were in this positional state of war, we're declared enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, now something has changed, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, he says, while we were in a state of war with God, we were reconciled to Him. I mean, the word literally means, reconcile means to to change one thing for another. I mean, it it literally was meant providing change. One use. If I give you four quarters, uh, I will will change it for, for, you'll change it for a dollar. Or if you're an older brother with a a younger sibling, um, I'll give you three quarters if you give me a dollar, Right? But it was used also for a change in relationship, which is the way God's using it here. And now knowing what an enemy means, it it gives you a better understanding of what this this change is talking about, this reconciliation means. It's God-focused as well. It's also related to an official position. It doesn't mean that that we reconciled in our minds that there is a God. Before, we wouldn't receive God. In chapter 1, we we rejected His truth. Now we've reconciled to the fact that there is a God. Or, Or it doesn't mean that we've reconciled our feelings toward God and now we're open to Him or we want to like Him. It means God has removed this, this declaration of war with us. And now we have friendly relations again. But it's even more than that. I mean, having been reconciled through Christ, we're not just a a diplomatic friend. God has made us citizens of His own country. We now have a passport carrying His seal. Don't miss the connection of theological terms here because it'll help you keep this this in theological order. I mean, look look back at verse 9. Look at the term that he uses here. Much more than having now been justified, there's the term, justification, 
by His blood. And then here's the second term in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. So justification and reconciliation. And there's a distinction between these, these two words. I mean, both come about because of the work of Christ. In His blood or through His death. And Paul is saying that God is not only a justifier, He's also a reconciler. He's not just a, a detached disinterested judge that's adjudicating holy law. He's a lover of sinners providing reconciliation, drawing you near. You say, so what's the difference between the two terms? Well, justification is, is a legal term, Colin Cruz said it, uh, relating to decisions in a court of law. So in God's holy court of, uh, of law, he, he, he declares you righteous forensically. Whereas reconciliation, the word reconciliation is a personal term relating to a, a restoration of relationships. So being justified judicially, God has reconciled us relationally. And you can't get that out of order, which is why Paul doesn't, which is why he starts with justification and then moves to reconciliation. I mean, God doesn't have reconciliation or friendly relations with sinners or with enemies. See, His wrath is on them. But He does, with justified men and women, those who are now judicially right with Him, He can now reconcile. Justified people are no longer at odds with the, with the law or the judge. The record of their sin has been expunged. And now that they're declared right, or you know, so that God is just and His holiness is no longer offended, God is now able to reconcile them relationally. And remember, that's the basis where Paul starts this whole list. Uh, all of these blessings are because or since you have been justified. Having been justified, we have. And having been justified by Christ's death, He has reconciled you relationally. And, and if that's the case, He'll surely save you by, by Christ's life. Having been made right with, with, with God's law, He'll surely re receive you relationally. See, that's where the, whatever term you want to use, therapeutic gospel, man-centered gospel, easy believism, we, we, we have a number of terms to describe a, a halfway gospel. It's where a man-centered gospel gets it so wrong and why it's so dangerous. It, it puts the relationship before the reconciliation. And then justification. It makes justification a result. Um... The therapeutic gospel starts with God wants a relationship with you. So if you pray this prayer, he'll justify you. But Paul says you're, you're starting in the wrong place. Uh, you're starting uh, with a relationship. You don't get a relationship with God before you're justified by God. You must be, must be forgiven before you're a friend. And the point is not that you're the one that needs to reconcile with God or that you're offended, so God needs to talk you back to Him. I mean, that's almost blasphemous. I mean, you can't have a relationship with Him unless He reconciles with you. And that's the whole point of the gospel, that God has come to reconcile things with sinners. And that's where the gospel comes in, because God, God can't do that with, with sinners unless His Son dies. I mean, that's the power of the gospel and why... 
Paul is so eager to preach this news because news is something that, that, that actually happened. I mean, the good news is that God's son did die. And what, what God was doing on the cross is, is he was reconciling himself to sinners so that whoever believes in that saving work by his saving son can then be justified and being justified also reconciled. But now that his son has died and God's justice is satisfied, once he has justified you in, in the son, he's also reconciled you relationally and, and you can now walk with him in fellowship as a friend. For you were alienated and now you're brought near. You see how the other way around um, is the problem? God loves you and he wants you to, wants you to love him. I mean, God's not a beggar in Christ. He's a sovereign reconciler. It's blood before, before brotherhood. I mean, we become so man-centered, we, we even apply that to our salvation. See, getting this wrong can confuse the gospel itself, as if God is up in heaven just longing for us to, to, to wise up and and what he does in Jesus is, is he helps us. I mean, he just needs to convince us he's really not as bad as we, we, we think he is. He's worthy of our love, so we'll finally lay down our enmity and, and come to him. But that's not what this verse says or what the Bible says. It's the other way around. God is at war with you. He has enmity toward you. Yet, in Jesus Christ, he's altered that. He made a way to change that. I mean, that, what makes the good news good is because of the bad. And so he's still just and the justifier of those who come by faith. I mean, that's a God-centered gospel and a biblical one. And if God's attitude so changed towards us, or changed toward us through his son dying for us, having died, do you think that that attitude will now change now that you're saved? You see, this whole section is about God. I mean, how He loves us, how He changed His position toward us, how He did it, and, and all that about God is to build our assurance. It has nothing to do with us or, or even our feelings. I mean, Paul said, I mean, uh, Lloyd-Jones said, Paul's not even thinking about our feelings at all in these, in these passages. I mean, his only focus is on God. Because if you understand how God has changed, then you'll find assurance. You see, that's the key to assurance and security. It, it, it's not about you or how you feel. It's to see how God now sees you because of the gospel. To see that. If you see that, if you see the change, if you see what God has done, then you won't doubt. And you also love Him and serve Him. And you'll fight against the remaining sin that, that sent Him to the, to the cross. And notice the basis for this change in position. He, he brings us back to this same theme. Look at verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, positional, God was at war. If while God was at war, we were reconciled, we were, we were made friends, we were brought near. And how did that happen? Through the death of His Son. The change of position happened through the death of His Son. He said in verse 9, it wasn't just by death, but... We were justified by His blood in order to purposely invoke the, the sacrificial system. 
I mean, even the mention of, of death points to the seriousness of, of the separation. I mean, think of it this way. It took the death of God's only son to change God's disposition toward you or change the position, the separation between you and God. I mean, if there was any other way, do you think there would have been a cross? If there was any other way to, to, be, to, to be changed in this, in this declaration of war between God, do you think God would have sent his son to the cross? Like, oh yeah, just go to the cross, but there are these two or three other ways over here, and, and people can choose that way too. But, but I will pour out my holy wrath on you, my only begotten son, and I will forsake you. I mean, that doesn't even make sense, does it? And God told Israel he was offended by sin, and it took a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath, another theological word. It's the word that Paul uses back in... Um, Romans 3, remember the gospel section, verse 21, after we went down into the, the dungeon of depravity, we, we were brought out by, after, by the words, but now, in verse 21, but now, after the condition of man, there's none righteous, no, not one, we've all sinned, but now, and that brings us this, this glorious hope of the, of the gospel, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been made known. It's, it's revealed in the gospel that Paul preaches. It's a righteousness that's realized in the person of Jesus Christ. It's promised in the Old Testament. It, it's gained by faith alone. It's available to all. It's providing justification. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's freely granted by grace. And in verse 24, up on the screen, he says this gospel is a gospel that comes through redemption and propitiation. Being justified freely or as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. It's a word that Paul is implying, this concept of propitiating you is, is what, God is impl- uh, what Paul is implying in in, in Romans 5, 9, and 10, by, by mentioning blood and mentioning death. I mean, in redemption, Christ purchases us from the, the slave market of sin. And in the act of propitiation, He satisfies, He, he placates, He absorbs His holy wrath against His enemies. And that happened by the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross of, of Calvary. I mean, if there is no penal substitute... Christ dying for, for sin in a sinner's place. If there is no bloody cross, then there, there is no salvation. There is no absorbing or propitiating God toward, toward us. And we would have to stand before, before that wrath. So Paul says this redemption is in Christ Jesus, and God displayed Him publicly, set forth as a propitiation, the main idea of the verse. Back in chapter 3, God made Christ's cross a public atonement for, for all to see, for enemies to see. That's why we can see God's love when we, we look, at, look at the cross. What happened in the cross? Not just a, a man hanging there, but, but there, was a, there was a redemption that happened there. And there was a, a propitiation that happened there. There was, there was a transaction. There was something that took place. God set forth Christ on the cross publicly. That's, that's the verb there. By, by doing so, he, 
Christ has now become the place where God meets sinners, where He's propitiated toward them, where they find shelter from His wrath. I mean, the picture in Romans 3 is stunning, if you remember it. It it alludes back to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, drags us through Isaiah 53, Christ is the suffering servant, and then this kind of drops us at the cross. It brings us all the way up to Christ hanging on on the cross where God has provided a new mercy seat. And if you were, a, you were a Jew listening or reading to, to Paul right in, in, in Romans 5, or if you were a Gentile paying attention to what he said in the first three chapters, you, you would be picking up some of these allusions by, by using these words. I mean, the Old Testament, the, the Day of Atonement, is the highest ho- uh, holiday on the, on the calendar. I mean, Israel just celebrated it. Moses was told that Aaron and the priests that follow him cannot enter into, into the holies of holies anytime they want. The consequences were, were serious because God was holy, lest they, lest they die. Uh, come in at any other time or any other way and you're dead because you're an enemy. The holies of holies was the, the innermost room in the temple, the location where God's presence would manifest. And the only way a priest could enter there would be one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could go on that day. Very elaborate uh, ceremony in order to teach us that God is holy and that we're separated from Him and something needs to propitiate sinners. Something needs to satisfy God's holiness. And all of that was separated by a veil or a thick curtain so nobody would would see God's presence, so we'd be shielded from God lest they die. There was a protective barrier there. And then inside the holies of holies, this, this room, there was one thing in that room. It was an empty room except for the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark, there was the, the tablets of Moses or the Ten Commandments. And then on top of that, that Ark was, was a lid. With, with two angels, cherubims, and they're covering their face, and they're, they're pointing at each other. And that lid was called the caporet, or the mercy seat. And there, on that mercy seat, between the two angels is where a holy God says He will meet His enemies, sinners. Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat... From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. That's where I will meet you. And, and on this one day, the day of atonement, the high priest would enter with incense to protect himself. He would smoke the room up so he would be shielded from, from God, lest he look upon the Lord. And then he would sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat, where God said. And, and he would make an atonement for, for himself and, and God's people. You get the picture, it's just, it, it, it's breathtaking. Um, you have the very presence of God hovering above the, the ark. You have in the ark the broken commandments, the broken Ten Commandments of man. And then you have the mercy seat between the, the broken commandments and the holy God and the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat by a mediator for the people. So that when now God looks at the broken commandments, He now looks through the blood and He no longer sees the, the sin and His wrath is propitiated. And Paul says, now, now God has put forth a, a new place of, 
of mercy. He says in Romans 3, this gospel passage, he's brought all of that out of the holies of holies. He's brought it out into the public uh, for for everyone to see. Now with the coming of Christ, God has made an atonement himself, and not behind the veil, but in plain sight. And, And now the location where a holy God will meet sinful man is not over a mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the cross... Jesus, as the, the Lamb of God, who was a greater sacrifice, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but, but with Christ's own blood, He, as the greater high priest, offers His own blood. And that blood expiates sin. It removes sin. And that, that event propitiates or satisfies God toward us, meaning it soaks up His holy wrath. And that is where Paul says reconciliation is made possible in that propitiation, in that death. So the order is God satisfies His his own law and wrath on the cross. He, He justifies us by His Son and then He reconciles us by this bloody death. And now He treats us not just as a forgiven criminal but a, but a friendly child. And our position changed in that instant from, from an enemy the friend, now that we're reconciled. Or, or you might think of this way in the terms of what we were saying before between countries. On August 4th, 1914, I don't think anybody was alive in 1914, not even Ashton. I don't think you were, I don't think you were alive in 1914. Britain declared war on Germany as a part of what was later called World War I. The hostilities had been going on for a while, but um, the United Kingdom officially declares war on Germany when Germany invaded Belgium. One historian said there wasn't TV back then, so, so the people in Britain opened their newspapers on the morning of August 4th and found out that war had begun. The story was front page headlines. I saw some of those headlines as I was studying. I mean, Great Britain declares war on Germany. Or, or historian said one just simply said war. That was it. But a few days prior, it was just a footnote. And Britain went to war, the historian said, at the, the moment that Big Ben struck 11 p.m. This, this moment war is declared after a telegram demanding that Germany would Stop invading Belgium went unanswered. And, and the war ended just as abruptly. At 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. 11, 11, 11. When Germany signed something called the, the Armistice. Which was an agreement for peace. And from that point forward there was no more fighting. That's what God has done in the death of Christ. At 3 p.m. on the ninth hour, on Friday of Passover, God signed an agreement of peace with us. Not because He couldn't win the war, but because His Son did win the war with sin, dying on the cross. And by faith alone, you're connected to that decree And the moment that your faith connects you to that finished work, that work of 
of propitiating, that work of redemption, that work of justifying, that work of reconciliation, at the very moment that your faith connects you to that, when that happens, everything changes in, in an instant because God's justice was satisfied on, on the cross and, and He then declared the war with, with you with over, was, was over. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying if that's true, and it is, and if he's done all of that at the cost of killing his son, I mean, do you think whenever you show up at the embassy while you're living in a hostile country as strangers and, and pilgrims, he's not going to open the door? Do you think that he's just going to leave you outside the embassy gate? He, or that whenever you finally get to heaven with, that, with, that, with a passport, with his own stamp on it, do you, do you think he's going to deny you entry there? You say, of course not. That's ridiculous. And, and that's exactly Paul's point. It is ridiculous. I mean, if God has done all that for you, do you think he, he, he's not going to now answer your prayers? He's not going to forgive you whenever you sin, when you confess, even after salvation. He, he's not going to keep you. He's not going to take you to heaven. I mean, we make a big deal out of countries who are sworn enemies when they even talk to each other. I mean, Israel and Lebanon just signed a maritime agreement a week or so ago, and it made, it made world headlines because they were once at, at war, and there's still hostilities between them. But as Paul says, when it says we have been reconciled to God, it doesn't make world headlines, it makes universe headlines, and that should give you assurance. But the apostle is not done. He's going to add one more, one more nugget here to put you at ease. I'll give you to verse 10 again. He says, For if while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, notice the, the tense there, you are now friends, we shall be saved by his life. If we were reconciled by death, much more we will be saved in resurrected life. Again, same argument, much more. Same logic as was before. If God can reconcile his enemies, he'll surely keep his friends. If the hard part was justification, the rest is easier. If it was so hard, it took the death of his son... If that's how big the hill was that God had to climb and on the hill called Calvary, he climbed it, he solved it. If that's solved, how much easier is the rest? But notice he ends with we shall be saved by his life or I think better in his life. Paul says having been reconciled, we are now in Christ. We're now in God's Son. We're, we're not just in his death, we are in his death, but now we're in his resurrected life. That's what Paul means by life here. I think it's a reference to the resurrection. He's saying the same thing he says like in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, back to the cross, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The death of Christ on the cross, I'm associated with that, and then the victorious life of Christ rising from the, from the dead. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also, in John 14, 9. 
And you say, that's wonderful. But there's something powerful in here for assurance. What is the risen Son doing right now, this very moment, for those who are in Him? Where did He go after He died and was buried and then rose from from the dead and He ascended? Where, Where did He ascend? Well, Hebrews 7.25 tells us, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number, that's the Levitical priesthood, because they were prevented by death from continuing. They were human, so they died. So there was a bunch of them. Here's the contrast. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds the priesthood permanently. And here's the verse. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know where the risen son is? He is alive at the right hand of God, interceding for those who are justified and those who are reconciled. And again, this is exactly how Paul ends in Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? That's verse 9. Justification, having been justified by His blood. Verse 10 is what verse 34 references. Who is is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, is He who died? Yes, rather, who was raised? There's the resurrection. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Christ died, but He also raised, was also raised, and, and He intercedes. So if God would reconcile us while enemies, do you think He'll reject us now that, that we live in Christ? While Jesus Christ is at God's very right hand, interceding for you by name with the marks of the slaughter still upon Him, do you think that, that you're going to be lost or He's going to forsake you? With, with the Son of the living God right there? Of course not. And if God loves us and reconciles us while we're outside of His Son, how much more will He do for us now that we're in Him and He's our advocate with the Father? Now that we're inside the household, He feeds us and cares for us and shelters us. And we now have new life in Christ. And we're secure in that new life. And in that security, we then live free to serve and to love and to do battle with sin. Or as 1 John says, My little children, I'm happy that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation. Same thing. Same language. Or as we say when we baptize people, we're buried in the likeness of His death and we're raised to walk in, in, in new life. And that new life is secure. If you've never been born again, then, then you're in the other state. There's a declaration of war. But if you've been justified and reconciled, then you have a new life, and that new life is, is secure, and it's one of freedom in order to be secure. Isn't that wonderful news? That's wonderful news. Let's pray.